This is John D. Hancock, and you're listening to the Walter Paisley Movie House. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we strive to be the best kind of terrible influence. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, our music is by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rorick. We are brought to you in part by our partner sponsor, Scarlet Lane Brewing. With five locations in the Indianapolis area, there are plenty of opportunities to try the official beer of horror. Since starting this podcast, I've gotten to talk to a few people whom I've idolized since my teens. Today's guest raises that list by one, and I could not be happier to have him joining me. He's an actor, writer, and singer described as Tallulah with testosterone. He has written for some of the most unique entertainers of all time, including Bette Midler, Lily Tomlin, Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, Pia Zadora, and, of course, Paul Lind. In his long career, he has written for hundreds of television variety shows, countless award shows, comic release specials, and stage shows, earning nine Emmy nominations with eight wins, two WGA Award nominations, and three Cable Ace Award nominations. I'm having trouble reading my own writing here with two wins. More importantly, he was awarded the 1997 GLAD Stephen F. Kolzak Award for furthering the cause of fighting homophobia and stereotyping in media. But who cares about all that when he also wrote the Paul Lind Halloween special, and he gave us the first instance of VR porn with the Star Wars Holiday Special. And i got to tell you right now, those are two traditions in my family. We watch them every year. Not only that, he has the single best Joan Crawford story that has ever been told. I could go on, but I just want to start talking to him. Please welcome the man who was the perfect foil for Mrs. Flutterman and who's the only person whose collection of T-shirts rivals my own, Bruce Valanche. Thank you so much. It may not. I mean, I, I, I sense you have cornered the market on horror T-shirts. I've got, I've got I, all I got sorts. A, it's a wide range, but, you know, I'm I've not got, a collector. I just yeah. have, I have great boobs and I had to show them off. Yes, it's same here. That's <laughs> do it really thank Damn. you so much bruce i'm so happy to have you here Thanks. Um, delighted to be here uh, so i'd like to talk a little bit i've listened to countless interviews with you of course the great documentary get bruce um and in that was the first time where it really kind of got into your childhood and i i always like kind of going back with guests a little bit to to figure out kind of how they got to what they became and that of course always starts with the hometown and as you said, you were ripped from New York at a very young age and taken to Jersey. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it happens. Seems to have worked out though. It was a blizzard. <laughs> maybe they turned. Maybe got the wrong direction. I don't. Know. <laughs> so you're growing up in a small New Jersey town. Uh, your mother is a performer, and uh, your father's a doctor, and you are a young Jewish lad. What was life like for you? Well, it was uh, it was fabulous. I mean, I was an only child, so I got I got doted on a lot, and uh, uh, and at Patterson, Patterson, New Jersey, which no one speaks of anymore, it wasn't really a small town. It was actually the third largest city in Jersey. It was a, a big city, but it was called the Silk City because it was all textiles, and the industry had abandoned it for mm -hmm. the South, where the labor was cheaper. So it was dying on the vine. And I mean, at one point in its life, there were so many textile factories emptying uh, the dye into the Passaic River that when we would go fishing as kids, anything we pulled out was a rainbow trout. <laughs> so 
that was gives you some idea of what Patterson was like. But I was it was yeah. just 12 miles across the George Washington Bridge from New York. Mm-hmm. And my my parents were very theater oriented. My father loved musicals and invested in them. So we went to the theater a lot. So I was in New York a lot as a kid. Uh, so I had a great time. I mean, I had, you know, all the usual crap that's coming of age stuff that you see in people's sensitive movies that they now film on their tele on their phones you know <laughs> but uh, and and show it at, at it's, a, it's a 30 place. second tiktok usually yeah right exactly <laughs> not, not, not exactly now why bother doing a movie do a tiktok get rich <laughs> but I, it, it was great it was great and and we have i have many friends there and we all grew up and nobody is left in patterson i'd like to point out it's, <laughs> a, it's kind of like not just white flight but all kinds of flight people just <laughs> it's not pretty and it was it's so not pretty that jim drummers made a movie called patterson that yes. he filmed mostly in toronto <laughs> that's well, my hometown do you remember the first musical you went to see absolutely it was a, a huge flop called the vamp oh that was and- uh carol channing it was Carol Channing, yes. and it was after she had done, she had exploded on Broadway in Judgment of Her Blonde, mm-hmm. and then she had followed Rosalind Russell into Wonderful Town, and uh, this was uh, her first vehicle as Carol Channing, and uh, she had also gone out to RKO and made some movies and didn't take. Anyway, she came back, it was originally titled Delilah, and it was about a uh, it's a, 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 girl, a real Hollywood story. It was it was set in the silent era, and it was about a girl who was an usher, and she became Theda Barrow. It's kind of like the real Theda Barrow story, right. who was a girl from Brooklyn. I forget what her name was, but it was like a you know an Armenian name or something, and she became Theda Barrow. And we see you all seen photos of her, and everybody, even Marilyn Monroe did an impression of her for Life magazine. Uh, <laughs> and it was about the vamp. She invented the vamp. Mm-hmm. And it was just a disaster. They changed the title to the van because people thought it was biblical because it was the lot. <laughs> and, um, and it just was awful. And, uh, but to me, it was the most, I'd never seen anything. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, the, the, everybody was pink and gorgeous and, and glittery. And, and this apparition that was Carol Channing with these huge saucer eyes, I mean, a, a face, built for the stage yes every it just projected to every corner of the house and i was completely and totally enchanted i was in, i wanted to be in that world yeah that was the beginning how old were you and at my that parents time recognized i was eight i think okay. right and uh my parents realized that this was what i loved and they they clocked me making faces in the mirror and you know performing at the family functions and so they knew that i was kind of smitten and my mother said uh, we we figured that when you learned how to read by looking at the movie ads in the newspaper, <laughs> this, this was not going to go away. So uh, we encouraged it. They just wanted me to make a living. They want when I started writing, they thought, "Oh, you can be a journalist because newspapers will never die." <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? So they that was my fallback. So I went to journalism school and uh, theater at the same mm-hmm. time and got two degrees and wound up at the Chicago Tribune where yeah. I was writing and I met Bette Midler and started writing for her. She was just starting out. Yeah, that's a really, it's it's one of those kind of like, as you said, one of those magical little kind of movie stories where you're a cub reporter for a big paper in a fairly big city and you meet, I mean, honestly, one of the greatest entertainers of all time. Oh, yeah. I'm sure well, right away you, you were at Mr. Kelly's, I believe the famous I was, Chicago club. She was opening for um, uh, 
Jackie Vernon, who was a deadpan <laughs> comic. Here I am on vacation with the family. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was unwanted. Now I'm wanted in 13 states. <laughs> I think, what is he, the voice of Frosty or something? I think he may have you been know, that original. Been. I mean, he, he could have been. He was just, it was totally deadpan. Yeah. And his audience kind of looked like him. They were, <laughs> they did. Uh, and I mean, they were not, as hip as that was, they were not prepared for Bet as an opening act. They were, I'm sure. You know, they, they kind of expected something more conventional. I don't know why, because he really was kind of hip, but he had, you know, he had, I guess, a, a kind of a, a, a middle class following. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't, you know, politically hip. I mean, he was just, you know, he was that his thing was he was deadpan and it was cumulative as you, he kept doing these things. It got funnier and funnier. <laughs> It was Barry Manilow playing with Bet at that time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Piano player, wow. Yeah. Wow. You were there at the beginning of some really amazing careers. I know. <laughs> I know. It was fun. It'll be in a book, not the book I've, I've just written, um, but the next book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, have, I have a book I'll be flogging after the first of the year. Okay. Which all involves right. all the things you mentioned. Oh, all super. The, all the ridiculous television shows I did. Oh, and it, great. It from podcasts like this, where I said, people actually know about these things. And it's, uh, um, I wrote a book. I wrote a book called, it's called, It Seemed Like a Bad Idea at the Time. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you're writing for Bet. I, obviously, you saw in her that not only was she a great singer, but she knew how to command a stage. Oh, yeah. And this was your first experience writing for another voice. How did sure. that go for you? How many hiccups were there in that road as you figured that out? Well, uh, you know, I, I'd actually had written for one other person. I'd written for Kay Ballard. Oh, okay. Uh, who I had met interviewing in Chicago, in uh, Chicago, and she, she was Kay was famous for picking up writers and uh, that she would meet and developing stuff. And in fact, she kind of created Candor and Ebb. I mean, she met Fred Ebb and he started writing special material for her and brought in John and, the, and they wrote some tunes before they even met Liza Minnelli. And mm -hmm. Liza was still a, you know, a teenager, it hadn't happened yet. So I would, had written for Kay, but Kay, and, and I realized Kay had a very specific voice. She was, uh, she was an interesting character in that she was very, very hip and had started on at the Bonsoir and the Blue Angel and all those clubs in New York. Mm -hmm. But she had a following uh, that, that was, uh, much more middle American from her television appearances than uh, than she was, mm -hmm. and uh, and so it was interesting to write stuff that her audience would get that would still make her happy and feel like she was actually you know, doing something uh, novel and original. Yeah. And so I, I I found that with Beth, although Beth's audiences were always from the very beginning very hip. We used to joke when when she first started touring, we'd say she'd come and say, "I hope nobody in this town needs an emergency comb out." <laughs> Every hairdresser in Tulsa is in this room. <laughs> and as you're as you're going along with her and you're writing these things and you're finding a way to write for someone else's voice, you're also, as you just mentioned, having to meet the standards of not just New York and the West Coast. You're also trying to meet Middle America, which I'm sure came in handy as you got to writing for television. Yeah. How did you figure that out i doubt well, you know, when, when we were <laughs> when we were, i mean you when you tour you discover that middle america 
there's there's a hip there's a hip quotient in middle America that so you can always kind of juggle it. But uh, it's uh, when you write for television, when you write at, at that time, it was only commercial television you were writing for. Mm -hmm. There were no streamers. There was no cable. Right. So it was a lot of it was sponsor dictated. And there, there were people there who were called standards and practices, or they were <laughs> known as censors, who, who were anticipating what the people of Kraft Cheese would think of the material. And, you know, and they were the people you had to serve because they, right. they bought the commercial time. Mm -hmm. And um, so, the, you know, and, and some of them, if they had a big enough buy like Kraft Music Hall, they would be on set saying things like too much cleavage. You have to, you know, <laughs> you have to zip up. So uh, you were, you were uh, enabled in your endeavors by these people. But I mean, it was, it was, you know, the kind of thing that you, you kind of, you adapt, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, if, I mean, if you were a, uh, <laughs> if you're, if you're a resident doing your residency as a doctor and, uh, and you're you're in like uh, a town in Utah, you know you will be confronted with a lot of very young mothers. Yeah, uh, and that may not happen to you if you know if you're in Seattle. Right. I mean, uh, so you adapt. You know, it's, it, everything is adapting. People say, "How do you write for these different characters?" And I think, well, uh, you know, it's like Bob Mackey. He would not design the same dress for Cher that he would for Lizzo. Right. They're two different figures. It might have the same idea, you know, and Lizzo is fearless and she yes. would wear something that Cher would wear and, you know, not care that it's tight and, and you know, not necessarily flattering. But uh, but Bob Mackey would care. He would say, no, I can I can come up with something for you that will have that glamour, but will fit your body tight. Yeah. So um, and that's the same way the dialogue is, you know, you're not mm -hmm. going to give uh, you're, you're just not going to give uh, Paul Lynn the joke. You're not going to give you know well you could give betty white the same joke i mean because she was just as dirty as paul i mean just as <laughs> minded. but i mean clearly you know if you're doing a show with barbara mandrell you're not going to give her material that you would that you give with mom's mabley i mean you learn right. <laughs> there is mom's a difference mabley. <laughs> i think that's the first time barbara mandrell and mom's mabley have been mentioned in the same sentence you know it could very well be i've never said it before and it might be it might be one of those things this is new like oscar levan said when he met judy garland pharma pharmaceutical history was made <laughs> It could be, you know. I always, I always liked his line. Uh, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin. That wonderful. Yeah. That's a great line. <laughs> so brilliant. So brilliant. Sean Hayes, I, I haven't seen, but I hear he's doing a great job playing Oscar Levant. I've heard that too. Uh, Roy, yeah. Roy, I'd never met, but I, I did know his widow June a little oh, bit. Okay. I knew her a little bit, but uh, uh, yeah, she, <laughs> she put up with a lot. <laughs> I would imagine. I mean, my stories are legion. <laughs> Not since Cole Porter's wife. Oh my um, God! Yeah. So, <laughs> so you're as you're doing this. How how long does it take you to get to a point where you've worked out a process that gets a little more plug and play for you? Does that yeah. make sense? <clears throat> Not really, but I guess I, why don't you? Uh, yeah, I guess where you're able to sit down, you know who you're writing for, you know what project it's for. And you, do you do you have a formula you go in with, or do you just sit and start 
riffing with other people well, and putting things together. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is to is to uh, do your due diligence. You have to watch them and and list, listen and and uh, get their rhythm and mm -hmm. figure out who, uh, what they're what they are doing generally. And then you have to figure out what the task at hand is. I mean, sometimes it could be writing. It, it could be Joan Rivers saying, uh, "I need jokes about puppy breeding." because <laughs> you know, i have a new puppy and i'm going to do a, th a whole thing on having a puppy and um uh, or it could be you know keanu reeves presenting the oscar for art direction and but keanu the difference is joan rivers has a stage persona keanu right. reeves has no stage persona and we made a huge a hideous error on the oscars by having him come out and try to be one half of bill and ted and that was a disaster. One reason why the other guy wasn't there. Right. <laughs> and also, that's a character that was written for movies. Yeah. That's not somebody that he gets up on stage and does every night and does new material for. And it was uh, it was wrong. The next time he was on, you just I just said, okay, this, he's Counter Reeves, and let's I can underwrite. You know, maybe just find a little a little subtle joke. And I I did. I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. But uh, it made up for the previous investment uh, <laughs> <laughs> because he's also a, a great guy. But yeah, uh, and has uh, I mean deliberately kept himself at a distance as a personality yes. from his audience and from the media in general mm -hmm. because he knows. I mean, he's you know he's not that guy. He's not you know he's not that guy who's going to have something funny to say while getting into a restaurant, right? Know? the TMZ. <laughs> I was actually going to ask about that. When you're writing for somebody who's not a comic, who doesn't have good comic timing, do you try and write around that or do you just hand mm -hmm. it to them and cross your fingers? You know, it depends. Sometimes those are the people who, who will get the biggest laughs because nobody's expecting they're going to say anything funny and they, they'll just read it and they'll be surprised themselves. Uh, and sometimes you just say, let's just, address what has to be done because they're not they're not coming to you for something that they're going to do in during their vegas residency right they're coming probably because they have to give an award to somebody in a benefit or accept an award or something mm -hmm. like that they want they want to uh to be lucid and heartfelt and uh and keep the audience's attention so yeah you know, those those generally are the are the you know the job description <laughs> Well, you do a fine job of it, quite okay. honestly. Well, you know, I keep saying playwrights. I mean, it's much harder. I mean, I, I was friendly with Neil Simon, and I say he has to make it all up. You know, he has to, I mean, he has to create the characters. And I mean, and I've written that stuff too, but I, I am given, if I pay attention, I am given a character that I can write to. Mm -hmm. And playwrights and screenwriters and novelists all have to come up with that entire character with no help from anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is i i speak from experience so yeah, yeah it yeah. is it is tough to do that anybody who writes fiction you know yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well that gets us into then let's let's kind of move into the 70s here uh because you were writing for not only some of the probably the most infamous variety shows but also some of the best um but it for me, it starts with the Paul Lind Halloween special, which is absolute perfection from beginning to end. And uh, obviously, you and Paul Lind were friendly, you got along, and you definitely knew how to write for him. 
when you were going into that and they told you who all was going to be on it, Margaret Hamilton, Billy Hayes, Betty White. They, yes. they didn't tell, that happened. That was that was part that of it. That all just happened as part of it. Yeah, I mean, that, it, was, it was, they they called and said, well, I'd written for Paul. Uh, well, he was on Donnie and Marie, mm-hmm. which I was writing. And he, it, it, because he had a, a sitcom that kind of crapped out. And so he, they were- The Paul Lynn show? Paul Lynn show. Which, yeah. Because he was a flavor. And it was difficult for him to be the anchor at the center. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. So um, uh, he was perfect on Hollywood Squares because he would come in with a zinger and be great. Yep. Uh, and and we used him on Donnie and Marie kind of the same way, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, he was the Wicked Witch of the West on the Halloween show. Right. <laughs> Donnie and Marie Halloween. <laughs> so, uh, and he would, he'd finish it at, at Donnie Marie, and then you go over to shoot squares, which in those days would be shot in the evening when people mm-hmm. were trouble. And he would say, "Come to me, come with me to squares. I haven't got shit." <laughs> and he'd have the questions, and we would, you know, we'd come up with jokes. And a lot of other people, he did this not just with me, but with other people. And uh, so, by the time we got to uh, the Poland Halloween special, I knew him pretty well, and. Um, it just seemed like it, it, they were looking for things. He had a deal for specials. He had about seven specials for ABC. Mm-hmm. And the first one was a straight-ahead variety special, comedy variety show, which I did not do. But then they said, we, we need to find a theme because he's done the, the comedy variety thing, and he's not really that guy. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they thought looking around holidays. And, of course, you know, nothing says Paul in better than Halloween. Yes. He was on Bewitched. He was yeah, Uncle, Uncle Arthur. Yeah, it was, it was a kind of a seamless uh, transition. Mm-hmm. And then once that happened, and we started cooking up what the story would be, we realized that we could cast it with real people. Uh, uh, Margaret Hamilton wanted to do it. We said, "Wouldn't it be funny if we had Margaret Hamilton and Paul was related?" We couldn't use Uncle Arthur because right. Bewitched owned that. But uh, we, she could. She works for him as his housekeeper, and she has a sister. Who was Witchy Poo, mm-hmm. Wilhelmina, Wilhelmina P. Witchy Poo, who was from Sid and Marty Cross show, um, HR Puffin stuff. Yep. And uh uh and uh, Sid and Marty of course had produced Donnie and Marie. So mm-hmm. they were they were very excited to have Billy Hayes as Witchy Poo. So and they were the two wicked sisters. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of took off from there. We needed a good witch, and of course Betty White. Right, was perfect for, for the Good Witch, and it was before Golden Girls, and and so uh, she was still she was kind of riding off of Mary Tyler Moore, yeah. off of that that edgy character that she played on, that passive aggressive character that yeah. she played, Mary Tyler Moore, and that she, and then she had had I think already had that weird that funny very funny Betty White show, yes, where she played like Angie Dickinson in Police Woman, yes. she, she played an actress who had a cop show. <laughs> Betty White running around in a uniform pointing a gun at people. Uh, and it was of course it was about her off-camera life. Right. Mm-hmm. And it it was one of those things that everybody watched at the beginning and nobody came back. It just didn't work. And um so it's, but but she was happy to be Glinda the Good Witch. Uh, <laughs> and of course Roz Kelly. Well, Roz, that was that was an ABC thing, you know, back in the day. They cross-plugged like crazy. I mean, yeah. they literally they had a show called Battle of the Network Stars. Oh, yes. Which was where where stars of network shows did a semi-athletic and real athletic competitions. You and know, Robert Conrad. And, I mean, it was... 
I just insane. remember Robert, Robert Conrad and Gabe Kaplan would take it way too seriously. Well, <laughs> well, Robert Conrad was an athlete, you know. Yeah. Gabe was a poker player. Right. <laughs> Robert Conrad was an athlete. And so, yeah, you know, the ones who were athletes in their lives took it very seriously. It's like Dancing with the Stars. Yes. It's like the Olympic swim, the Olympic person always went it's either an olympian or somebody who has been dancing in shows for all of their life yes yeah. <laughs> uh, they win because they have the stamina and they have the discipline right because they have that olympian discipline where nothing else matters but training yeah and so of course they always show up the best in, in the thing so it's the same it's the same thing with that so anyway um uh where were we oh with ross so had been doing happy, happy days, days yeah dude. And Roz played Pinky Tuscadero, who was Fonzie's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was pretty hot stuff, Roz. You know, she was yeah. like a flaming redhead, you know, in the Gwen Verdon mold. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and gum chewing and uh, what Madonna adopted later in her early videos. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, that was what, what Pink, who Pinky was. Yeah. And she was, she was always playing Pinky in, in mm -hmm. our she was still it was like pinky was a guest right <laughs> she played a truck stop waitress named pinky and uh it was in a dance number later on you know but but it was always kind of kind of pinky but that was because the network uh wanted wanted sure. that because yeah they wanted abc guests and i can't remember i don't i i mean Tim Conway was was I don't know if he he was on all three networks at one point or another right we remember him from Carol Burnett uh, but he was he had he may have had a show on ABC at that point, and Florence Henderson had the Brady Bunch, right? And so that so all of these things were were cross from cross mm -hmm. That's a, that happens so often on those variety shows where they just bring in the hot person of the moment and yeah. maybe even of just the week, and then well, we brought in the hottest <laughs> thing of the moment, which was Kiss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, they were Paul, first Lynn, Paul Lynn had no idea who they were. <laughs> Not a clue. Not a clue. But uh, he came and looked at a rehearsal and they were all in, you know, in their drag and all that. And Gene Simmons came up to us and stuck his tongue out. And then as he walked away, Paul said, I want to meet him. <laughs> and so I, I went up to Gene and says, Paul wants to meet you. He said, it's the tongue, isn't it? <laughs> said, yeah, the song always gets them. <laughs> it it really is. It holds up as far as I mean. Sure, it's '70s and it's cheesy, but it's still so much fun to watch. And the reason is, and it's the thing that I love about all these things. It's where people put in a hundred percent. Like nobody's phoning it on that one. At I, all. You know, I uh, and it was expensive, and it looks expensive, mm -hmm. and. Um, and it's, you know, it's full of a lot of those cheesy kind of jokes of the period. Sure. But I, I've been looking at it a lot because of the book. And um, uh, what I didn't realize until I looked at it again was it's there's a sweetness to it because Paul in his monologue in front, we didn't know, I mean, he doesn't do monologues. And we thought, what are we going to talk about? And he, he said, well, you know, I hate, I hate Halloween. And I said, why do you hate Halloween? He said, because I never fit into the costume. Because I was fat. And I never fit into the costumes. And so that we went on a riff about that, about how much he hates Halloween. And then at the end of the show, of course, the show is structured around uh, the witches giving him wishes. And, and, right. Um, and so he got his wish was to actually like Halloween. And this was the first time he'd ever had a good time. And he delivered it at the end very sincerely. 
and it I really thought, did. I thought, yeah. I'd totally forgotten about this aspect of it, but you know, as the comedy writers, we generally forget any of the sincere crap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and here I am, you know, 40 years later looking at it going, well, how do you like that? You know, so, yeah. I I did. I want to ask you. I so I we do a show here in Indianapolis every year called the Dead Comics Show, and basically <laughs> we we pick a dead comic and we do like three minutes of their act. And I did Paul Lind a couple of years ago, and um, I I basically told some of the, the famous Paul Lind stories. The when he and Wally Cox went into the Gold Diggers des- dressing room. This place smells yeah. like pussy. I think right. that kind of stuff. But I I wrote what I think is the funniest joke I'm ever going to write for it. And I wanted to, I just wanted to get it from a professional. What you think of this one? I I said, um, Charles Nelson Riley was such a queen. He helped kill Diana. Oh my God. <laughs> well, you know, it, it takes several leaps. So. <laughs> and at any one of them, people could go, what? <laughs> So it's very brave. <laughs> when very I when brave. I when I thought of it, I actually Googled it because I think and I I stole this from somebody because it's I couldn't have come up with this, but no, it was mine. I was very proud of that one. I always believe when when in doubt, go dark. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're working on the Donnie and Marie show, and you were on that for three years, I think. Maybe four. I, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. in the. Uh, I think so. I think it was two years. Then the, the third year, we they bought a studio in Utah. They built a studio in Utah. Yeah, they moved it up there, and that was when it uh, sort of fell apart. And that's probably uh, only one reason was that the, the production was weird up there. But it was uh, you know teen teen idols have a short uh, lifespan. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Donnie had kind of slid in behind David Cassidy and then Sean Cassidy slid in behind Donnie. And so the kind of the bloom was off that rose. Yeah. And and Marie was was uh, had become she was not just this cute kid. Now she was this sort of threat. I mean, she was a hot, a hot little number. Yeah. And also uh, most telling was the, the Incredible Hulk had been programmed opposite. And that was a big hit. And so the audience kind of melted away. Mm-hmm. So with a show like that, where not only do you have restrictions from the television censors, you've also are dealing with restrictions from the Mormon church. David, the elders in Salt Lake. Yeah. When you're when you're under those kinds of restrictions, do you feel that you thrive a little bit trying to find a way to get the dirty jokes <laughs> in? Well, of course. I yeah. mean, but yeah, that's always you know that's always a, a must. I mean, uh, we were heartbroken when a, a new, when Mrs. Futterman came on the scene at ABC and told us we could no longer have people in a jacuzzi because it, it was a trademark, and you know because we had them in the jacuzzi yeah. for an entirely different reason. We could have said right. hot tub. <laughs> no, we used jacuzzi, and when that came down, we uh, suddenly. We, we relocated a lot of people that they were there from Coos Bay, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. And, was... uh, I believe you also made sure that Marie sang a uh, Elton John hit. Well, what happened with, with Marie, uh, you know, she was turning 18 and they wanted her to do adult stuff. And uh, so I was, I'm very friendly with Melissa Manchester and Carol Sager for many years, and they had written a song called Coming from the Rain. Beautiful song. 
gorgeous song. And it was a big hit for her, and but it hadn't gotten around much yet. And um, I, I, I asked if Marie could sing it, and they said, oh, that would be wonderful. We'd love Marie to sing it. So I gave it to them, and Marie loved it. And then they said, uh, they, they came back to me, one of the, uh, Alan, who was the, the chief, the oldest Osmond brother of the performing brothers. They are 14 mm -hmm. kids. And um, uh, he said, she can't do it because uh, it's about a woman who takes her husband back after she leaves. I said, really? I said, it could be about a lost dog, you know, coming from the rain. You, you ran away, you made a mistake coming. I mean, it could be anything. Uh, uh, one reason it's kind of universal. No, no, it's pretty specific. I said, well, if you feel that way. So I said, they won't let her sing it because it's, it's and uh, so instead, uh, I got them an Elton John song, which was, uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. <laughs> that they loved. Oh, Elton John, so happy. You love it. And this is such a big song for it. And so she's in there saying, don't let the sun go down on me. And <laughs> Mrs. Futterman looking over and she says, I see what you did here. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be satisfying. Yes, I would rather that. There's nothing she could really do about it because she would have to explain. Right. <laughs> just kind of said, no one's going to, you know. It's like what we used to say in Hollywood, because if they... If they get it, they'll love it. If they don't get it, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter. Right. They'll just say, "What was that? That wasn't funny." And then you, you move on to the next thing. <laughs> I was the the writers for MST3K. Their their motto was, "It's not how many people will get the joke; it's who's going to get this joke," which I think is well, just yeah. a great way to go in. I like those that kinds of things. because it, you know to make the writer feel better. It's like, well, smart people will get it. Hit right. <laughs> Well, I have Very to get a self-serving attitude, and I have I have served it myself. <laughs> well, I have to get into the heart Star Wars holiday holiday special. Um, mm -hmm. I was one of the few who saw it when it originally aired. It and got a decent rating, actually. It I it it did. It was it, on a Friday night, which was yep. bigger than it is now, and it was the weekend before Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's Give fine. Me interrupt. It's uh, I was uh, let's see, I was six, and I remember about. Uh, four or five minutes in, my father sighing heavily and leaving the room. Um, <laughs> Wasn't for him. <laughs> the, but the first did he come minutes, back to the Diane Carroll number? He missed the whole <laughs> Diane Carroll. I know that's uh, you know that was it flew right him. over six year old Dylan's head. That was but... for the tired business wookie. <laughs> I mean, it is surreal. It, and um, you know, I'm sure there was just a mountain of cocaine that was that was also co-writing this. There was a and, certain amount. And it, most of it went to Carrie, I think. But well, uh, I joke about you know. I mean, I, I keep telling people uh, I embroider. I mean, yeah, we were all doing stuff. Carrie was uh, doing more than most. We, uh, my joke was that Carrie and I were snorting the sweet and low, which was <laughs> which was. You know, it, it was an embroider, but we we're doing stuff. Yeah, no question. And everybody was kind of, it was the 70s, and everybody sure. was kind of baked a lot of the time, but not all the time. Sure. But, and then I got, I saw uh, on a blog post with Blanche, who admits to copious drug abuse. <laughs> Wait a minute, I made a joke. I don't know, copious drug abuse. <laughs> so, 
but so I, I always kind of like hesitate talking about that now. But sure, it was the seventies. You know, the audience. Yeah. If you remember the seventies, you weren't there. Yeah, I could cut this whole part of the conversation if you like. I have no, no, I don't mind. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but it, it is it it's so wonderfully bizarre. When I I I got a bootleg of it years and years ago, uh, probably in high school. I had a VHS bootleg of it, and then I've since I've upgraded to the Blu-ray bootleg. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, but we do watch it every year, and um. It it the things that stand out to me, and of course the Diane Carroll scene is I I mean watching a Wookiee go to full orgasm on camera is <laughs> amazing. Pretty great, yeah. It's pretty good. But you you've got anchors holding it in place too, like Art Carney and B. Arthur. You've got these these heavy hitters mm -hmm. coming in, Harvey Corman, who um obviously was was up for anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was, he absolutely was game. And the one thing where he does the robot that is having a breakdown yes. and is, is losing his dignity and is having a breakdown over the fact that he's breaking down. That's pretty great. Mm -hmm. uh, as I say in the book, that one had, had, had a great idea. The, the Julia Child alien was a one joke thing. Uh, and, uh, but, um, but that, but that, the thing with the robot has something to say. I mean, it, yeah, there was a real character there. Yeah, he tried, but then we had him with B. Arthur's uh, uh, another alien uh, hitting on uh, B. Arthur yeah. in the bar, right? And Very her, bartender. her song in that is genuinely wonderful. Um, I know she wanted to do the Alabama song. She did, and this was kind of like those are those somewhere between the Alabama song and those were the days, my friend. Yeah, so, we'll drink, we'll raise the glass, my friend. That kind of yeah, good night, but not goodbye. Yeah, it's a there beautiful song. Yeah. It's just gorgeous. And you sing in a much higher key. Yes. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's key. B's key was in the bed to the basement. Yes. No way, Harvey the same. <laughs> <laughs> I had them on the American Comedy Awards. George Slaughter uh, paired them uh, on the American Comedy Awards as presenters. B. Arthur and Harvey. B. Arthur and Harvey Feinstein. Like, well, B would do the show every year, and she didn't care what we did with her. One year right. we had her with a, with a walrus. Uh, you know, presenting with a walrus, and one year we had a presenting with a guy who was the human condom was his booking. Uh, <laughs> he 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 would step into a bubble and walk around in the bubble that he had created. It was something to behold. I'm sure. And so she, everyone, she said, "What what are you doing with me this year?" And uh, uh, and the, the party was very funny because it was kind of how low can you go? You know? <laughs> so far as writing on these shows like the Star Wars Holiday Special, Donnie Marie Show, uh, Paul Lynn's Holiday Special, when you start finding out who they're getting for these things, is that become kind of a? Are you fighting with the other writers to write material for people? Sometimes, sometimes yeah. you know nobody wants to write for them. Sometimes they go, "What are we going to do with her?" You know. <laughs> I mean, it's. It, I think it, it. I don't know if it would be harder or easier now because there were uh, obviously, uh, you know, people like Raquel who would step into 
uh, her Raquel Welch persona. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was happy to play that because she knew it worked, although she was not happy about how people regarded her in real life because they thought she was that character. Right. Uh, and, but so sometimes it was very difficult. The one, um, the one that was on the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, which is in the litany of shows that we Yeah, did. we were we were going to get there. Oh, well, Vincent Price <laughs> was the guest. And, of course, we all wanted to write for Of this. course you want to write for Vincent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were just, and we had, we concocted a whole storyline for him that he could, uh, uh, where the uh, uh, Greg, the oldest, decides he doesn't want to live in the house that they're living in in L.A. And he gets an apartment. And he goes to look at apartments with their next door neighbor, uh, Rip Taylor. Right. Uh, who's also their kind of manager. We never were quite certain about that. And the two of them look in this house and Vincent Price is there. And uh, he's he's also looking at the house because it's haunted and he, he loves haunted houses. And he <laughs> this was a joke I came up with that was just for me and people who knew me. Um, he was looking, he was, the house was this haunted. He heard this house was haunted by a ghost he knew. We lost track of, and her name was Stella. And so Vincent Price could go around the house going, Stella! <laughs> <laughs> really? That's for people who knew streetcar name designers, Brando and Tennessee Williams. <laughs> And he just screamed when he read it in the script. And oh, great! They said, can we throw a Stella? I said, if it gets slow, can I just throw in a Stella? Do <laughs> as you want, your Vincent Price. <laughs> this was pre pre thriller, right? You yeah, know? I mean, thriller came later when Michael Jackson, uh, you know, used him as a fabulous narration. Yeah, I think around that time was was that when he was doing the Oscar Wilde one man show? I think it was right around that. Wow, same time. It, I, you know, it could have been. I don't know what he was. I, I don't know what he was doing at the time. Okay, I, but, I, I mean, just kind of remember that was. But I don't remember him talking about that. But his wife, Carl Brown, was around for the whole. Who he would always mention. My well, wife, the actress. Carl I Brown. knew them socially. Okay. Uh, they were very friendly with Joan Rivers and Edgar Rosenberg, her husband. Then okay. I met them at a Seder. Joan would throw a Seder every year. And it was full of non-Jews, you know. And yep. the Jews, we had the heavy lifting. And they would sit there, we would be explaining things to them. It was hilarious. Because we everything everything sounds funny when you're trying to explain it. This is why you eat the charosas. This is <laughs> you, eat, you know, and I mean these people have no idea what these traditions are. And it you know, you begin to see them kind of going, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. I mean, you know, if I go to Catholic things and they start explaining stuff to right. me, I go, really? And then I, I think of, you know, of the Mishigas from my own my own uh, synagogue. I mean, Andani Marie with the Mormon stuff with like, oh, I'm sure. really? I mean, my, my joke with Olive Osman, who was the mother, uh, uh, would come in and, and I was I was making I was having a Bloody Mary at my desk. Those were the days. Sure. And she said, are you drinking? How can you drink alcohol? It, it, your body is a temple. How can you defile the temple this way? And I looked at her and I said, mixing meat with milk, you heathen. Tight. <laughs> <laughs> then you have your traditions. I have my traditions. <laughs> yeah. You go to your church, I'll go to my church. <laughs> but anyway, so that's when I met uh, Vincent and Coral and they were, we were socially friendly. And so he, I, I think, 
that was one reason why I was delighted he was on the show. Yeah. And, she, and he brought her because I don't think he could believe he was doing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, it was hard to find guests. I'll have yeah. to say. Nobody really, because it hadn't established itself as a hit. Mm-hmm. Nobody wa- nobody really wanted to do it. People who just needed the money, like yeah. Tina Turner, she right. was on it because she had left was, Ike. Yeah, was, just left Ike. She was paying off all these debts. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, putting together an, an nightclub act that I had something to do with, and um, and you know it, it was uh, like money. And uh, she didn't have a dress. She didn't. You know, he had taken everything. She yeah. He had taken everything, and he wasn't going to give anything back to her. So Pete Menefee designed something for her, and, and uh, you know, she, uh, she said the armholes. Whoever was in this before I was, the armholes are too low. You know, I, <laughs> She refused to believe it was an original costume. <laughs> what you're you're taking off? You're writing on so many things. Uh, Bet's most of Bet's uh, TV specials you wrote for yeah. was I, I think was Mondo the only one you did not write for. Well, Mondo Biondo was her husband. Um, yeah, Kipper Kids. That was when she married Martin, who was known professionally as Harry Kipper yep. of Kipper Kids. I was going to uh, ask about them because I'm obsessed with them. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> he met him because uh, uh, Tony Basil, mm-hmm. who, hey, Mickey, you're so fine, has been yep. choreographing bed shows for years. And uh, um, and we went to see the Kipper Kids in a show. Uh, and, well, it was performance art. So yeah. was, a show is not the word. <laughs> it was an event. And, uh, and, uh, that they, they met, and uh, Tony thought that there would be something in it, so he she hooked them up, and uh, they got married three weeks later. So, <laughs> and had been married for forty years. Yes. So, um, so one of the things that uh, she wanted to give them some exposure, she could do that. So she went to uh, HBO and then Cinemax, and they were doing a series of like uh, specials. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she created, she and Jerry Black created Mondo Biondo, who was a this Italian star <laughs> character. And they did they did that one. I mean, I think I wrote a couple of things for her. But essentially, it was her introducing the Kipper Kids and about six other mm-hmm. performance artists who would not really get exposure. Yeah. And, uh, and they were... I forget who they were, but I remember some of them were fantastic. It's really interesting. Yeah, I've it, seen the show in a long, long time. Yeah, the the Kipper Kids one takes place in a bathroom. While she's hot, cowering in a stall, they're making a complete mess in the bathroom, just being the Kipper Kids. So, but, you know, they used, they used to come on stage in in dance belts, jock straps, and and with a trunk. Yep. They would open and they would take out various food cans full of food and pour them on each other <laughs> and create art. And they would, they would speak it'd be without like a human, words. A human creamed garden of spinach, <laughs> corn, and things. And uh, uh, accompanied by music and grunts. And uh, they look like sumo wrestlers. Yeah. That, you know, had gotten loose in, in the paint factory. Yeah. Right. It's, it's it was utterly cool. bizarre, but fascinating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you're... Picking up more work, you're getting into then the award shows, which I'm sure not only is uh, probably helping you a lot monetarily, but also just it's got to be a great gig 
just it happened because cable tv came in and it killed variety television mm -hmm. last real variety show was barbara mandrell and the yeah. mandrell sisters and that was about it there hasn't been anything there have been a, a couple of stabs and feints over the over 40 years dana uh, carvey had a show and Mar marty short and maya rudolph had a show and nothing's ever stuck yeah uh so um it, that energy transferred into events, award shows, a lot of them, and, and specials and various spectacles. And the, the proliferation of award shows happened because it was cheaper to do an award show than an episode of Friends. Because Friends, yeah. you were paying $6 million out of the box, a million to each of them. Mm -hmm. And then you had to do the show. But of course, Friends had a, a healthy very healthy rerun life yes uh but for that kind of money less even you could produce an award show and have 30 names so there were a lot of them a lot of like crazy award shows i uh, used to say i've done everything but the american bulimia award <laughs> i mean they're the patsy awards you know for dogs and, right you know, i mean so there was all of that and it was it was great i mean yeah i made did well with it but it was they're fun to write and fun to be at and uh, the Oscars are like the Super Bowl. It's, you know, at the yeah. time, everybody watched them, and they were you know, it was gigantic. And uh, also, I got to meet an awful lot of people. I I'm mean, sure. I, they'll say, do you know this? Yeah, I worked with them once. They were on the Oscars I wrote, you know. And to this day, I write, people call me up and say, write me something. I don't like this. They've written for me. And so I kind of said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, well, I haven't worked officially on the show in some, some years. Yeah. But but when you were in the meat of it, the the spontaneity of it, uh, it comes up a lot in Get Bruce when you're talking with Billy Crystal and Robin Williams, the that you have to be able to run on the fly because you never know what's going to happen. Of course, the Jack Palance is probably the most famous, uh, yeah. probably big moment in Oscar history. Um, and it, it turned into a bonanza for you guys. Well, yeah, we uh, we won the Emmy, actually. Yeah. Uh, we won. We won the Emmy the year before, and we won it again uh, the second time for a for a, the show where we had turned the script upside down. So I mean, we, I mean, then we won it afterwards for you know another show. But it was uh, it was it's, it's quite a landmark, and uh, it kind of set a template because you know award show hosts always had writers in the wings, and right. ready with something to comment on what was going on. But in that one, we actually threw stuff out and just had that running gag. And uh, coupled with the idea of, of having people on, on standby in case there's something you could make a remark about became the way to do those shows for everybody, right. not just for uh, the, the stand-ups who are not Hope and Carson, but for everybody. <laughs> well, you're not only a writer, you're also an actor. And uh, we've got to talk about some of the things. And personally, for me, Ice Pirates might be the the pinnacle oh, of movie making in the eighties. Also, a chapter in the book. Yeah, <laughs> it seemed like a bad idea at the time. Yeah, uh, it it is in the world of cult films, which is obviously my thing. It is right up there uh, with with the top. Oh yeah, here. Yeah, it, it's filled with so many. Well, first you got Stuart Raffel directing and writing. Mm -hmm. um who is uh he's brought us some of the finest in in cult films uh this is one of his best i mean you've got angelica houston robert urich uh, a very young ron perlman more importantly john carradine um 
just being around all of that as uh at that point a fairly young actor for you you hadn't done a lot to that point what what did that feel like just being on that set around all these legends and soon to be legends well i was brought in as a writer mm -hmm. uh it was uh, john foreman was the producer john foreman's picture and he had a development deal at, at mgm and um at the time uh well so he was developing this thing at, at, at the time uh, this, uh they fired the head of production and he was suddenly made head of production so he greenlit wow. the movie and <laughs> paul williams uh was playing weird wendon and he dropped out uh because i don't know i guess i i don't know but i know him but i never did find out why he actually quit and i had i was brought in to uh rewrite and i was i was punching it up i was throwing in jokes and yeah. doing stuff and whatnot and because they wanted it to be re a, a real a comedy action thing yeah and um they um and suddenly when paul was not there they looked at me and they said well good morning Wendon. We're putting you in. So suddenly I was, so of course, I rewrote it. So they said, well, we don't see him coming in on page three. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not his story. It's, it's Good not, try, though. Know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, it was fun doing it because I, I knew the script so well. And mm. uh, and it was, you know, nobody took it too seriously. I mean, we... Sure. Uh, Bob Uriquette was a big television star, and he was trying to get a, a foothold in movies, and it, yeah. it, he had it, it hadn't happened. But part of his deal was that he got MGM to make movies for him, and so this was a perfect vehicle because he saw he could be funny and he could be sexy and he could be an action hero at the same time. Yeah, and um, nobody who was in it thought that there, we were making great art. We thought we'd be making something that would kind of fall between two stools but it was an unusual uh concept mm -hmm. and uh uh I, the only person who i i ron perlman who was wonderful during the whole thing apparently really hated it because in his book he said yeah, i won't write about it every time i see him he's like ah you know but he's like he has no fond memories of the thing at all <laughs> i have nothing but i mean angelica houston it was her second movie and mm -hmm. uh and uh she was perfect. She was a deadpan. It was exactly what she had to be. And she was living with Jack Nicholson, who would come down to the set now and again. And that was always an event. Sure. And um, uh, and Mary Crosby uh, was uh, Bing Crosby's daughter, who was not mm -hmm. with us. But um, uh, I mean, it, it was a, a lot of fun and very silly. And yeah. Tom Cusack, who was a football player. Right. Uh, and was partied very heavily <laughs> and so he was always welcome because he always brought party favors yeah. <laughs> but it was it was it's a ridiculous story because uh um about two weeks before that we were finishing they fired john foreman as head of the studio brought a new guy in and he said i'm not shutting it down but you have to wrap it up you have to cut you have to wrap it up this week and so that was where we came up with the time warp Okay. <laughs> because we, all the stuff we couldn't shoot. Right. We threw in suggestions of it in the time war. Right. So it was nuts. And we had one last shot that we had to do, and Culver City went out, the power failure. Oh, happened. my God. And we couldn't get the last shot. We were all packed up to go home after the shot, and they said, and and there were frantic phone calls and all that, and they said, you can come back tomorrow and, and shoot it. Oh. So... 
we came back to Iraq, we shot the last thing, and then it was over. And then when it finally, when it was released on Monday, because you didn't know, it wasn't like today where everybody knew what was, know what's going, they know on Thursday what the grocers are going to be on Monday. Right. So on Monday, he called me and he said, we're, we're, we're like a half-assed hit. We actually, we did business. Yeah. Because the budget was nothing. So we did business. And I think Mel Brooks actually wound up using some of the sets from, on Spaceballs, which came in next. Yep. And uh, um, and so, I mean, they got their money back out of the thing and, and then some. And, uh, yeah, and it kind of, then what happened was Angelica won the Oscar for the, her next picture, Pritzi's Honor, produced right. by John Foreman. And suddenly they were showing all of her movies. There were three. Princess Honor. And Ted Turner kept showing the Ice Pirates, and he loved the Ice Pirates. And so, like, a whole generation grew up watching the Ice Pirates on television. And, you know, I know that. <laughs> and, I mean, they come to me and they say, Space Herbie! You know, so <laughs> immediately know the Well, what about John Carradine? Did you get to spend any time with him? Yeah, he only shot, he was like two days. I mean, he came in. We needed yeah. a, a dark He was doing a lot of, of those. We needed, yeah, but he was very old. And yeah. You know, he was, he was, God, he was a doctor. Arthritis was horrible. Just he was, horrible. He was, uh, but he had, he had great stories and I wish I could remember them, but they were all about people, you know, like mm -hmm. Marie Dressler would be, people would kind of go, mm, who is that? <laughs> but, you know, back in, this was in the 83, I mean, you know, she was still alive in the memory of people other than cineasts. Right. <laughs> so, uh. He was, you know, and he was uh, kind of revered because he was the father of Keith Carradine and David Carradine and the grandfather of uh, Bobby Carradine mm -hmm. and great-grandfather, I guess, of Ever Carradine. So, I mean, he was like the head of this dynasty, which was already forming. So he was uh, a force to be reckoned with, and he just had to sit on the throne and, and say things. You know? Yeah. And so it, 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 was, it was a great, he was a great presence to be around. But sure. We also had to work fast because, you know, he, the energy, you know, we could just do so much in a day. Yeah. He, he, at that time he was doing, and he, he would always famously say, I did not save my money. And so yeah, he well, would end up doing. He said it to me. It's yeah. <laughs> why are you in this? Why? I actually, I said, why are you in this? I did not save my money. Yeah. <laughs> He did That's one in 80, 85 called Evils of the Night, which is um, they had him, Julie Newmar, and Tina Louise for one day. And it was one of those literally there. His whole job in that movie was just to spew out bullshit science. They were space aliens coming to take the essence of young people. I'm sure they had no idea what movie they were in because they probably wouldn't have done it because it's then surrounded with scenes of actual porn stars. I was going to say, the really, essence of you. Yeah. <laughs> Like they, Sterling Hayden and like, Dr. Strangelove, my, Amber, my, Amber, my bodily exactly. <laughs> Fluorides in the water. Um, yeah, it's it's a bizarre film. Uh, Amber right. Lynn's in it. <laughs> it's wow, I've done a couple of those. I've been there for, and I did one with with Jenna Jameson actually. Mm -hmm. An independent in, in indie, of course. Yeah. Um, when you talk about money, uh, Mae West who I knew at the, towards the end, I wrote for her towards the end after my Breckenridge was doing sextet. And on the phone once she said to me, so are you making a living? And I said, I'm comfortable, I'm, I'm doing okay. She said, do what I did, buy the valley. <laughs> said, excuse me? She said, yeah, Hope and Fred McMurray and I, we bought the valley, we divided it up. Mm -hmm. It was all orchards. 
<laughs> That's and, true. Know, they I mean, did. It had to be like before, or either right after the war, mm-hmm. I think, you know, when, when all these guys who went to fight in the Pacific came back and settled in Southern California mm-hmm. and they started building freeways and all of that. That, that was all, you know, kind of farmland and it got snapped up for residential stuff and they all got very rich. And of course, you know, Hope lived in the valley right. until, until the end. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there's something to be said for being smart with your money, especially yeah. in that business. Yeah. <laughs> <In> the valley. <laughs> oh. Well, I, what, there's so many Mae West stories, especially about her later years. I, aside from just writing for her and being friendly with her, what was she just? What was she like to hang out with? Well, you didn't really hang. I mean, you. It was all very orchestrated. You go up to her apartment, and the door would open, and she would be standing on a pedestal in the front hall with <laughs> pink lights, and there would be a muscle man who would come and help her down. Of course. Oh my God! <laughs> and then you know you'd be escorted into the into the next thing, and uh, she was uh, she was fascinating because she she had great stories because she you know, vaudeville and uh, all of that. Sure. But she was uh, you know, very caught up in being Mae West. Yeah. And she she never dropped character. Yeah. And that at one point, um, I think Harvey was Harvey Friesen was gonna, writing a Mae West biopic for a bet at HBO. Wow. And, and uh, I said, it's, it's going to be difficult because who is she when she's not Mae West? Yeah. But then Claudia Shear wrote that wonderful play, Dirty Blonde, in which she she fantasized about who Mae West was when she wasn't Mae West. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it certainly worked well on stage. Yeah. I mean, the, the bet Harvey thing never happened. But uh, I always thought, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to write that. I mean... Because it's, uh, you know, I mean, that, that it, that's a part of who, who she was, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't think that she was the, delivering every line like she was, was in, a, in a Mae West picture. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, there are certain performers like that. Uh, Peter Sellers, they always said there was just no personality unless he was in character. And I only met him once, but yeah, there was, there was nothing there. He was always in character, I guess. Yeah. Fascinating. I, <laughs> I mean, she was she was very big on uh, psychics, Mae West. That really, was sincere. And there was a guy named Kenny Kingston who was like the Hollywood psychic. And she called me up one day, and totally honest, she said, mm, "You should have come last night to dinner." And Kenny Kingston came in. He's amazing. He made a cripple walk. <laughs> I don't think there. I think in the other sphere they were they, they he had reached. <laughs> I don't think actually there was somebody who got up, you know, in a wheelchair and strolled <laughs> around. I don't think that. Happened. I think it was all like part of the show. You right. Know? <laughs> he was totally taken with. <laughs> well, so long as we're into old Hollywood, can you tell the uh, John Crawford, David Niven story? Uh, well, I will, and I will credit it to David Niven Jr., who told me the story, and um, and I, and I completely believe, and it was, uh, and it's uh, if you're a John Crawford fan leave now who's not <laughs> but if you're at that kind of if you're our kind of drunk for you <laughs> david niven came to hollywood dashing young british actor and he was uh you know fixed up on studio dates and one of them was with crawford i guess they were both at metro and uh they went out and crawford was had had a legendary uh, um 
behavioral pattern, she would drink a lot. And she was always going after her leading men, you know, and then and some say her leading ladies as well. But uh, Dietrich used to say that. So uh, she, uh, they, they went out, there was a lot of drinking and they, and uh, they got, he took her home and she said, let me slip into something uh, comfortable. And she went up this uh, staircase and he said, well, I have to call the people I'm staying with and tell them I'm going to be late because it was a tremendous rainstorm happening in the winter. And uh, so she, the, there, in those days, people had telephone rooms in some houses, but in her case, there was a pedestal with a phone on it. And it was in the, the arc of the staircase, which was one of those curving staircases. And so now he's dialing and he's dialing the phone. And as he's dialing, feels it's rain's coming in. And he's, oh my God, it's raining. And he said, I better, I should tell her. He's thinking to himself, I should tell her that, that she's got a leak in the roof. And he looks up to look to see where the leak is. And she is uh, naked and she's straddling the banister and she's peeing on him. And I mean, I, I picture David Niven having this, doing this with a phone in his hand, you know, doing this tape. It's like, what do I do? You know. <laughs> I think what he said was, Joan, I, I'm, I'm calling a car. I have to go. <laughs> There's trouble at the house I'm staying at. I have to go. So now, David Niven Jr. told the story at a dinner party, and uh, and I have been quoting it for years. It so, is just it the pedigree, best. and I know there are people I know who are actually who are friendly with Joan Crawford who say, "Oh, that's apocryphal. It's terrible. It's in it." Yeah, print the legend. But you know what? I mean, there are so many stories about her. I mean, I, I have another long one, but I can't do it now. Uh, Alexis Smith told me. Uh, when I, when I was doing a musical called Platinum that starred her, yeah. and Mommy Dearest, the book had just come out and everybody mm -hmm. was reading it. And I said, have you read it? She said, I don't have to read it. She says, I knew her. She says, Any, anything that's in that book, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> and then she qualified that. She said, you know, I think she was a blackout drunk. And a lot of the, the stories that are attributed to her are things that she did when she was in a blackout. Yeah, And that's, that's you know, not having been familiar with many a blackout drunk in, in my day, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon. Yeah. It's, not uncommon. it's just unfortunate that her daughter decided to write a book about it, that, right. that that's where that relationship was. Yeah. But that's another. But that's it did movie. give us that wonderful movie. So, I mean. Oh, well, yeah. Timeless. Timeless. In fact, I was I found I I was rewatching Get Bruce uh, in preparation for this, and you have a wonderful T-shirt with Joan Crawford holding the axe, wearing a cowboy hat. Don't fuck with me, boys. Across the top, I just, as I was watching, I'm like, I have that one, and I have a Bet's Bet's favorite is uh, it's a, a Harrell. Uh, George Harrell was a, this, the big photographer at Metro, and he was famous for Venetian blind lighting, okay. which would be like. You'd be in the dark, but your eyes would be lit or your mouth would be lit. And it's uh, a picture of Crawford, a portrait that Harrell did uh, of her in the Venetian blind lighting. And uh, the cut line is, in quotes, she's saying, I never laid a hand on those kids. <laughs> That's favorite. <laughs> what? Can we talk a little bit about hairspray? Well, I have to go, actually. Oh, we've been, no. We've been, we've been, Yammering away for over an hour. Oh, I go, okay. 
I got to go have a career. I understand. Thank you so much, Bruce. This has really been a dream come true. I I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Great. You too. That was Bruce Valanche and how much fun is he? That was a great talk. I'm so glad I got to speak with him. So glad I got to spend some time talking about some of my favorite cult television shows. Holland Halloween Special and the Star Wars Holiday Special. If you haven't seen either of those, go check them out. You can find both on YouTube. Uh, They're also streaming, I believe, on Tubi, uh, the Halloween Special is. Check them out. They're just loads of fun. Next up, Michael J. fucking Weldon, the man who brought us Psychotronic Magazine. We had a great conversation. That'll be coming out next. Hey, get out there, do stuff. Be awesome. Go to a movie, but take care of your servers. And if you go to a movie, clean up after yourself because this is the Walter Paisley Movie House and we do not piss on hospitality. See you later.